Let's hope that <laughs> this better be good. Uh, anyway, so we are looking at Romans chapter 7, <coughs> technically verses 13 to 25, because that's where we ended last week, and because in your Bibles, verse 13 is the beginning of a paragraph. Most expositors preach starting at verse 14, and I'll explain why. But before we begin, just so that we have a common understanding of the text we're dealing with, so you're familiar at least with its basics, <clears throat> let's read the passage together. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that is good. Now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see my members, another, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Be you, God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Okay. It's a bit of a mouthful. It's a little convoluted in some ways, and yet brilliantly composed. This passage is one of the most widely debated portions of Scripture in the history of biblical interpretation. Really? Yeah. You would think it's pretty straightforward, but it's not. Some argue that the I in this text is pre-conversion Paul. Claiming that a true believer saved by grace in union with Christ would not, could not be sold under sin, as you see in verse 14. In other words, a person who is overpowered by sin, and in fact, for the first 300 years of the early church, the church fathers, like Origen and others, interpreted it this way. In 
around 350 or so AD, Augustine came around, our just brilliant church father who really established a lot of, of uh, widely accepted theology. At first, he interpreted it that way, then changed his mind and wrote an entire excursus saying, no, it's actually a understanding of the I meaning the Christian life, the normal Christian life, and that Paul is speaking of himself now, that he's struggling with sin even though he is fully saved. That understanding from Augustine influenced the church for hundreds of years, including Luther, Calvin, John Owen, and even today, the J.I. Packers, John Murray, Sinclair Ferguson's, and John Piper's. There's another think group of thought thinkers that believe this teaches a metaphorical, it, it, that this phrase is metaphorical of being in union with a fallen Adam and represents everyone who has fallen. And there are others like Martin Lloyd-Jones, of all people who, if you're familiar with the expositors out there, you would think he would fall into a more traditional camp. He believes that this passage is about someone who is under deep conviction prior to being converted. So a little bit of both. And then lastly, there are those who say Paul is speaking as an old covenant believer who has not yet experienced the outpouring of the Spirit, which comes in chapter 8. Because it's very interesting to note that all through this passage, the Spirit is not mentioned. Not once. Even John Stott, the great John Stott, he tries so hard to hold both ideas of it being pre-conversion and today at the same time. And there's, he, he does a pretty admirable job, but ultimately there are those who would say he was, in, that it was inadequate. Well, one fella puts it this way, and you might think, well, what's the big deal? He said, a guy named Kim Riddlebarger, he says, we do not have the option of remaining undecided about this text because how we interpret it will affect virtually every aspect of our Christian life. From the doctrine of justification to the doctrine of sanctification to our expectations about the Christian life and how we choose to live it to the kinds of teaching and preaching we hear in the church to the way in which we deal with our troubled consciences to the way we pray, how we interpret those few verses has such dramatic consequence for our daily lives that we have no choice but to make a choice. And I, I had to step back and go, really? But if you interpret this passage as Doug Moo does, who's a professor of New Testament at Wheaton today and is widely respected as one of the top evangelical scholars, he interprets it as pre-conversion. And Michael Bird, who is a top um, uh, scholar out of Australia, I read his commentary um, on this passage, and 
he makes it pre-conversion, but his reasoning bothered me. He said the reason why it has to be pre-conversion is that in today's culture, we do not teach guilt. We don't teach sin. So consequently, someone coming to this passage with no background finds it completely unintelligible. So a Buddhist reading it wouldn't find it, wouldn't have any understanding. And I'm kind of going, okay, so you're letting modernistic understanding of psychology and sociology determine your understanding of this passage of scripture. And I, he goes, I mean, he's very articulate and very widely respected. And I came away feeling, oh, I'm so unsatisfied. Because one of the examples he used of it was a fellow who read it while an atheist and it convicted him and is now a pastor at a church. Oh my you just countered your own argument. So here we are looking at this passage and as I, I had to write this down so I'm sitting on the plane I wrote this I am no scholar nor am I a qualified theologian but I have read the arguments of each of these positions I personally lean toward the plain reading of the text that this is Paul speaking about himself at that moment. It is the normal Christian life. One where we, while we are fully justified by grace, but we still have a sin nature within us. But let me repeat some of the reasons why we should look at it this way. Taken from an article by Justin Taylor in the Gospel Coalition uh, blog where he summarizes the content of four of John Piper's sermons on the topic. So if you want to go listen to John Piper speak for four hours on this topic, you can. Or you can read Justin Taylor's summarization of which I am summarizing. <laughs> so I'm taking a very long summary and making it even more summary. Number one, Note Paul's use of the word I, me, or my. It's 40 times in verses 14 to 25. 40. How can he be talking as if it's either someone else as a representative of Adam? That doesn't make any sense. And is he speaking about his experience prior to conversion? You can make that argument but it doesn't make sense in the context, either prior to this passage or after this passage. The other thing that's very interesting, you can almost see it in the text that you have in front of you. From verses one to 13, it's all past tense. Starting from verse 14 to 25, Paul changes everything to present tense. So before this, you have him speaking of the past, speaking of the law, speaking of his understanding of the law. Notice uh, the last time we were together, he, it was when he was taught the law and taught the concept of covetousness that suddenly he wanted to covet everything. 
because he was told he wasn't supposed to. And we used all those fun examples of, oh, well, you know, well, it was fine until I knew I couldn't do it, and suddenly I had to do it. And he was saying the law can created this, uh, the idea of sin. But then he says, now, present tense, all through it. So I can't help think that Paul is being quite autobiographical here. Number two, uh, this is, I'm just going to read it. Only one who loves God and his law would call the law good, verse 16, and spiritual, verse 14. But in 722, in verse 22, Paul writes, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. And this is how Paul consistently writes of the Christian self. An unregenerate person, someone who is not a believer, and even a devout Pharisee would not speak of joyfully concur. Only someone who understands fully the life in Christ would be that concept of joy wouldn't come in. Next, it doesn't fit the idea that this is a pre-conversion Paul doesn't fit with his pre-conversion passages like Galatians 1.13 and 14, where he writes, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. You have no hint of an inner conflict. He was certain. There was no doubt in his mind that he was right. And yet, over here, you have this warring in the mind and the flesh back and forth. There was no warring in his mind before. Next, Galatians 5.17 writes of this same experience you find in Romans 7. Quote, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It's as if that one verse, which was written what was it, about 10 years earlier, I think was our estimate, was a foundational piece of which he preached on, spoke on, and then in Romans he expanded it this way. <clears throat> the phrase, sold under sin, in verse 14. This is the, that's the key verse for those who think this is pre-conversion. It doesn't mean you go from unbelief to belief and then back to unbelief again. This isn't a, you lose your salvation, you got to do it all over again kind of thing. Instead, it describes a moment of failure where sin gets the upper hand. And that is commented on in Romans chapter 6, verse 12, 
where it says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. So sold under sin is more of a, sin doesn't control you, so don't act like it does. But recognize that you once were sold under sin, now you are free from it, act like it. And then verse 24b, second half of verse 24, it says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? This is great. John Piper wrote, So some claim that no one pre-conversion or post-conversion, that no one from post-conversion would say, Who will free me from the body of death? My question is, what real Christian doesn't say this? Every one of us at some point says, Help me. I can't deal with this sin. It's just overwhelming me. I keep doing it over and over again. Doggone it. I need help. Well, I'll get to that in a moment. But that's kind of should be a universal question. And if you don't ask that question, you're not paying attention. Then, the la- my last of my summary anyway, um, Verse 23 says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And you want to go, oh, wow, it's hopeless. It's over. But that's not the final answer because chapter 8, verse 2 says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You cannot read chapter 7 without reading chapter 8. We only have the chapters to help us find things. It's a take the numbers out, take the verses out, and read it as a text. And if you're reading along and you see chapter 8, oh, good, I can go get coffee now. It's a break time. It's a, there's a gap in the text, so that means I can stop. No. You read from the thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve the law of God with my mind. With my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It, you, you can't do it. And we do it all the time. We do, we, our commentators are set up that way, our reading, our devotionals, you know, through the Romans in 40 days, they're going to put a break in it. They're, yeah, it's helpful. At the same time, you have to realize that it's a narrative, not um, a bunch of quotable sayings. So, <clears throat> I then came across this article and it's the entire article here. Yes, I was able to read it in its entirety. From Robert Saucy, who was a professor at Dallas Seminary, and he would give this talk and hand it out. And he asks the question, I'm not gonna spend too much time on this, but it's more for our thought and some of the thinking that goes into this particular text. 
are we and I mean we in this room sinners who are forgiven or saints who sin So, are we sinners who are forgiven, or are we saints who sin? Yes. yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the answer is yes. We are sinners who are forgiven, right? But if you stop there, then you can possibly fall into a libertarianism. That means you can sin all you want because it's already been forgiven. At the same time, there is a holiness element of being a saint who has been who've been chosen by God, filled with God's Spirit, and yet we're not perfect, which is really annoying. We should be perfect, right? It's so easy. No. <laughs> I could go into this, I mean, obviously he did for the longest time. And it is technically the yes. Even Martin Luther wrote it this way. A Christian is at the same time a sinner and a saint. He is at once bad and good. For in our own person, we are in sin. And in our own name, we are sinners. But Christ brings us another name in which there is forgiveness of sins, so that, for his sake, our sin is forgiven and done away. Both, then, are true. There are sins, and yet there are no sins. Thou standest before God, not in thy name, but in Christ's name. Thou dost adorn thyself with grace and righteousness, although in thine own eyes and in thine own person, Thou art a miserable sinner. In fact, there was an entire discussion about miserable Christianity that I came across. And I thought, okay, we have, because that's very uncomfortable in today's world. If you were to go to church and every Sunday they talk about how miserable you should be, it might feel right. And then after a while, you get tired of being hammered on. And yet at the same time, we have to be cognizant of it. So a couple stats for you, just so you see the difference between Romans 7 and Romans 8. The I, me, my is 40 times in Romans 7. And the word law is 31 times in Romans 7. In Romans 8... The Spirit is mentioned 21 times. It just changes its tone completely. Alright. So now we dig into the text itself. Now that we've solved all the problems, uh, now we want to kind of look at it a little more carefully and see what, are, what is being 
dealt with here. And I'm actually going to start on verse 14 because that's when the past tense changes to present tense. John Calvin writes, he says, there's no greater disagreement in a person than that which exists between the fallen nature of man and the righteous requirements of the law. And the verse reads, for we know that the law is spiritual, meaning it's of divine origin. It isn't man's law. This is God's law. But I am carnal. That is the literal meaning of the phrase, I am of the flesh. I am carnal, sarkanos, sold under sin. The law is holy, we are fallen. And even after conversion, our sin nature remains sold to sin. As Riddlebarger puts it, this is a very important point. Before conversion, sin was characteristic of the non-Christian. Now, as a believer, sin is out of character. And that's why the presence of sin in the life of a Christian is so disturbing. Sin characterizes what we were in Adam, not what we are in Christ. This, then, is not the sentiment of someone who is still enslaved to sin, but a person would never have such a struggle. But this struggle is characteristic of all who have been liberated from the guilt and power of sin and who are then constantly reminded by their own failure to do what God requires of what it was like to have been a slave to sin. Although we have indeed been liberated in Christ, we remain in the flesh. We feel like slaves to sin since indwelling sin remains until the resurrection. Remember Galatians 5.17. I'll read it again. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And as I wrote here, this is our struggle every day. As one writer put it, he says, why do you think the Lord's prayer is recommended to be done every day? Forgive us our trespasses. Why is there such a thing called confession if we didn't have anything to confess? Why do we have that section in our service? It's a confession time to look inside and say, oh man, um, wow, I actually, I did lose my temper this week. Or, oh no, my week was perfect. I did nothing, nothing ungodly all week. Aren't I special? Oops, I just sinned. <laughs> but seriously, when we take that moment to look inside internally, and one writer put it some way, in an interesting way. He said, so you have a performer, and those of us who have ever been on stage in any form or fashion, and you hear the applause, and you say, thank you very much, and then you go down and you mingle with the crowd, and the crowd, someone's gonna say, oh, that was wonderful. Your impulse is to say, yeah, but I forgot my line, you know, in the second act. Or, oh, I forgot to come in at the right point in the music, or I stumbled on that step. Because we know that we weren't perfect. But I learned very early in, 
in life to don't tell the audience that in those moments. They're just want to say thank you. Don't ruin it for them, but be aware of your own failures. And it's just, you know, it's not quite the same as holiness versus sin here, but you get my point. There's that we are aware of our failings. And even Pastor Jim mentioned a little bit today, he said, it's almost as if, if, if God really knew me, he would not choose me. If he really knew how bad I am, he would not choose me. It's like, no, he loves you no matter what. And then he provides for the salvation of your soul, for goodness sake in an extraordinary way through mercy and grace. So I, I, I was writing here and I was trying to think through this. We sometimes, and I, I'm not, maybe I'm, I'm now speaking more broadly than just our group, but we've met people who are of the faith that are meh about it. Like, eh. And they don't ever think about it. It's as if it's a, an option. It's something over on the side someday, and if it's brought up, then they say all the right things, but it, they really are not pursuing the life of holiness or even thinking about it on a regular basis. A.W. Pink said, it goes, if any Christian reader is ready to say that chapter 7, verse 14, for I know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, and is ready to say that does not describe their life, I'm going to say in all kindness that they are deceived. We do not mean by this that every Christian breaks the laws of men, or that he is an overt transgressor of the laws of God, but we do mean that his life is far, far below the life the level of the life of our Savior who lived here on earth. We do mean that there is much of the flesh still evident in every Christian, not the least in those who make such loud boastings of their spiritual attainment. And in many things we all stumble, James 3, verse 2. The Heidelberg Catechism answers this. Question 114. Can those who have converted to God obey the commandments perfectly? Answer, no. In this life, even the holy, holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some of God's commandments. Question 115. No one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Why then does God want them preached so pointedly? Answer. First, so that the longer we live, the more we may come to know our sinfulness and the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life, we reach our goal, which is perfection. 
keep moving here. Are you ready for a big dose of vitamin I? Here we go. Verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. Now it is no longer I who do it, but the, the sin, but sin that dwells in me. You never know how hard it is to stop doing something until you try to stop doing it. And suddenly you realize, oh, this is difficult. I mean, think of those who are addicted to something. It can be chemical. It could be an activity. It could be anything of that nature. And then to ask them to stop. Yes, there are those who can go cold turkey. But for them, some, they are always fighting it. As one writer put it, he said, even the alcoholic will say 25 years after sobriety that they are still an alcoholic because the desire is there. And they recognize that and then attempt to overcome it. And they, you know, the uh, author went on to various chemical um, pills or smoking or just even behavior. So I had a client one, uh, she's still a client, um, who had gastric bypass surgery. She had actually been on the cover of uh, uh, some magazine for those who are overweight because she was very beautiful. She'd been a model, but then she kind of blew up and then got it back down by going through surgery. And she said, if you know of anybody who's gonna do that, please let me talk to them. Because the surgery is not the answer. The surgery is one step. You have to get the mind right first. There has to be this understanding of what's happening and why things are going on. In her case, it was a obsession with certain kinds of food. I had another friend of mine once who said he put himself in the hospital with a heart attack because of the desire for taste. And he was tasting all the wrong things. And once he realized he was able to break that, he was able to step out and make some, some noticeable changes in his life. It's not the same for everyone, but there is that idea of I do what I don't want, uh, but then I'm doing the very thing I hate. So, uh, C. Cranfield writes it. He says, The fact that there is such a conflict in the Christian proves that is within them is the acknowledgement of goodness and righteousness in the law. And this something within the Christian, this center of commitment to the law, is the work of the Holy Spirit coming from without yet works within the human personality, not as an alien force, but in such a way that, he does, that what he does may truly be spoken of as the action of the person themselves. Personal, uh, first person singular, the individual. A fellow named Dahan wrote this little poem. He said, struggle 
Yes, it's part of living. Nothing gained on beds of ease. But when our heart is set on Jesus, struggle drives us to our knees. There is this idea of that struggle, that constant pressing that we know we should be doing better. And and make sure we don't stop there with that conversation. We're going to further investigate this because if you stop there, who's doing all the work? You are. And you will fail. It's just we do not have the ability to be perfect. So, another fellow brought up something that's very interesting. You see in verse uh, 17, it says, Now it is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells within me. Notice it's not plural, sins. It's sin, singular. And in the Greek, there's the article the in front of it. Paul does this regularly with whenever, not every time, but if you see the word sin singular in Paul's writings, it's very often the English translators are taking the word the out because it doesn't make sense grammatically necessarily and can be confusing. But in this case, it's really quite interesting theologically because you have, but now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me, and as this writer puts it, what Paul is doing with the sin is to use the word not to describe actions or results, but to describe the underlying root cause or principle. Or in medical terms, this author, he says, I'm a physician with subspecialization in infectious disease. He calls it the sin virus that we have inherited from Adam. The sin is, like, is highly contagious, a lethal virus which every man, woman, and child has inherited because every person alive can trace their lineage back to Adam, the first man. The presence of the sin gene in our moral makeup is the very reason we commit sins. So the sin is, he's speaking of the sin nature, what is embedded in our DNA, if you want to call it that, in our moral makeup. And consequently, then, sins come from that. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire or the will, depending on your translation, to do what is right, but not the ability or power, depending on your translation, to carry it out. Think about that for a second. We have the will, we have the desire to do what's right, but we don't have the power to do it. Well, that's frustrating. As I age, I have the will and the desire to dunk a basketball. I no longer have the power to do it or the ability. At one point I could, but it's just not possible. And if I get on a court, my mind is soaring and I'm doing all sorts of wonderful things, but I'm looking like an old man who can't dribble a basketball. And 
you know, poor little Caleb said, let's go out, let's run. <laughs> sure. <laughs> How about let's not? Uh, <laughs> there were a few times this, this past week where a little seven-year-old, and I just said, oh, Grandpa can't do that right now. <laughs> Let me sit down. <laughs> anyway, um, you have the will, but not the power. So let's put that into the spiritual context. You know what's right. You know, saying that nasty thing about that person behind their back is not correct. You know that moment where you feel superior because you got something right and they got it wrong. That, those are, that's a, a constant war that we have in the faith. And you want to say, but I'm a Christian. I know better. And as Cranfield puts it, yeah, good. You understand it. It's actually a good thing to have this war. Why? Because it dawned on me, we have this word war that we're talking about. Why is there the whole armor of God then? If there isn't a war. And we kind of tend to look at that as the world coming at us, and this is how we protect ourselves. But doggone it, we're fighting ourselves in the midst of the battle. So to be goofy about it, I mean, you have this, you know, sort of truth and we're wielding it and feeling very good and we're getting all fancy and we cut ourselves in the neck. What a bozo. Because you weren't understanding or you wielding the tools properly. Martin Luther put it this way, I can't keep the birds from flying around my head, but by the grace of God, I can keep them from building a nest in my hair. <laughs> Donald Gray Barnhouse came along, he said, that's a great illustration. However, the evil birds are not outside of us. The human heart is their cage. And they never cease to beat their wings. True, we can keep most of their eggs from hatching, but the foul birds will nest within so long as there is breath in the body. We are obliged, therefore, to say, the good I want to do, I do not do. When we consider how, notwithstanding all of our watchfulness, infirmity and, and evil mingle with everything we feel, think, or do, and so we have to add, the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Because those birds, doggone it, they keep chirping, they keep fluttering, and they're in here. So one more great quote. I have a lot of them here. I mean, there's so much great literature on this passage. It's, it's really quite amazing. This is good old Charles Spurgeon. Would you love to have sat under his preaching? Oh, man. There are some professing Christians who can speak of themselves in terms of admiration. But from my inmost heart, I loathe such speeches more and more every day that I live. Let those who talk in such a boastful fashion 
must be constituted very differently for me. While they're congratulating themselves, I have to lie humbly at the feet of Christ's cross and marvel that I'm saved at all. For I know that I'm saved. I have to wonder that I do not believe Christ more and equally wonder that I'm privileged to believe him at all. To wonder that I do not love him more and equally to wonder that I'm loving him at all. To wonder that I'm not holier and equally wonder that I have any desire to be holy at all, considering what a polluted, debased, depraved nature I find still within my soul. Notwithstanding all the divine graces done, done for me, if God were ever to allow the fountains of the great deeps of depravity to break up in the best man that lives, that man would make as bad a devil as the devil himself. Think about that statement for a second. I care nothing for what the boasters say concerning their own perfections. I feel sure they, um, they do not know themselves or they would not talk like they do. And then this sentence. There is tinder enough in the saint who is nearest to heaven to kindle another hell. There is tinder enough in every saint who is nearest to heaven to kindle another hell if God would but permit a spark to fall upon it. In the very best of men, there is an infernal and well-nigh infinite depth of depravity. Some Christians never seem to find this out. I almost wish that they might. For it is a painful discovery for anyone to make but it has the beneficial effect of making us cease to trust in ourselves and cause us to glory only in the Lord. Verse 21, For I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in this in my members wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death often commentators and expositors will take verse 24 and call it a cry of despair after all of the reading that I've done and the study of this, this is not a cry of despair. This is the, the cry of every believer who desires sanctification. You come to that point in your life where you just lay back and go, Lord, I can't do it. And God goes, finally. Finally. I have been throwing stuff at you so that you would stop working so hard to be perfect and trust in me. As the very next verse is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. How in the world would he be praising God after a sentence like the previous one? If it were not this answer. When you are on your face, when you're prostrate, straight before the Lord saying I, I can't do it anymore and the Lord reaches down and says 
here we go. I am next to you. I am with you. I will carry you if need be. We will get through this. We've met people that feel defeated in their Christian life. They give up. Oh, God doesn't think I'm worthy. And he goes, no, he doesn't. That's why he sent Jesus. So you don't have to work to be perfect and be worthy of his grace. It's not this idea of you walk around the victorious. There, there's the idea of always being in victory. Okay, we are. At the same time, we aren't. But it's recognizing where the victory comes from. It does not come from us. It just it doesn't. Cranfield again writes this way. The farther people advance in the Christian life, and the more mature their discipleship, the clearer becomes the perception of the heights to which God calls them, and the more painfully sharp their consciousness of the distance between what they ought and want and be and what they are. Consider how absolute are the claims of Jesus Christ. The person whose cry is this, O wretched man that I am, is one who, knowing himself to be righteous by faith, desires from the depth of their being to respond to the claims of the gospel that makes upon him. It's the very sincerity of his love to God which makes his pain in this continuing sinfulness so sharp. So while it's a cry of anguish, it's not a cry of despair. And there's a big difference. We cry out, we should be crying out. We cannot do this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh serves the law of sin, and we wrestle with that constantly. So I wrote this final paragraph thing as kind of my conclusion here. We can get fatigued in attempting to grasp the concepts of this passage. To grasp ideas like will, or the mind, or flesh, even the word I. What does this mean? And we're trying to pull it all together. Do we then groan over the seemingly un insurmountable mountain of our inadequacy? Yes, we do, and we should. Because only then, when we recognize our weakness, can we cry out and welcome the help of the Holy Spirit. But here's the irony. The Spirit has been there all along. The Spirit indwells us. And we go, oh, hey, when did you come? I didn't know you were here. And God's going, ah, you know this. Why do we keep forgetting it? The Spirit is there all along. The Spirit is not some 911 call away. And we have to wait five minutes for the Spirit to show up. No, He's been in the room giving us CPR the whole time. An indwelling Spirit. 
it is us that take the that take charge thinking we can solve our failures through another TED talk, through another self-help seminar, or even a compelling sermon. We think we can solve it if we just grit our teeth and try harder. And ultimately we come to the question, who will deliver me? The answer, God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God amongst those who are being saved and amongst those who are perishing. So what do we smell like? Are we the aroma of Christ? Have we let the, the Spirit come in us and give us victory over those struggles? We acknowledge the struggles. We confess them daily. Lord, forgive my trespasses. Help me. And each day we do better and better, and then we fall. And then better and better, and we fall, and that is okay. As long as we're not taking credit for our good times, we are giving God the credit through His Spirit. And what's going to be wonderful is we will get to go into verses 1 through 11 of chapter 8 next time and dive into what that looks like. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time here to wrestle, I guess is a good word, with a, a passage that's it, it's just so extraordinary. When you read it over and over again, you realize, wait a minute, that, that, I could have written this. And that's the point. That's why you in your mercy put words like this in our Bible, in our scripture, so that we can read it and know that our struggle is not unique. It is not unusual but it is a reminder that is only through you that we can have victory over sin and this body of death in jesus name amen